Hey, worldly listeners, you should check out our sister podcast, The Weeds, which every Wednesday is doing an election special in the run-up to the 2018 midterms. I assume you really care about the future of the United States, and these elections are really important. So go listen to them. They're really sharp. We love their show. You should, too. Hi, Alex. So I've got a question. What's up? You always want to read the best commentary on world news and foreign affairs when we're prepping the show, right? Absolutely. Otherwise, we can't do worldly. So when it comes to protecting your financial future and personal livelihood, right, you also don't want subpar stuff. Like, you want the best financial advice. Yeah, who wouldn't? Yes, okay. Generally, that's what I think, too. So when it comes to something equally important like your personal finances, you shouldn't settle for an average investing tool. And now, thankfully, there's a smarter way to manage your money. Betterment. Betterment is an online financial advisor for people who refuse to settle for average. They use cutting-edge technology to build personalized portfolios and help you make more from your investments. Plan for retirement. Reach your financial goals. Make the most out of your money. Don't settle for average investing. Demand better. Betterment. Outsmart average. Now, investing involves risk, but worldly listeners can get up to one year managed free by visiting betterment.com slash worldly. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T dot com slash worldly. Hello, and welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham. Jennifer Williams is out sick this week, but I've got Alex Ward with me. Hi. Last week, we talked about Jamal Khashoggi, a Saudi journalist and Washington Post reporter who disappeared after entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Our question then was, did the Saudis abduct him? Now the answer to that question seems clear. He was murdered in the Saudi consulate by agents of the Saudi government. The new question for the world, and particularly the United States, is what we're going to do about it. Now, after the break, we're going to be doing a special segment on the worrying Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But first, let's tackle Khashoggi. Alex, what have we learned this week? So what we've learned is uh, what Turkish officials have said anonymously, so we have to take it with a bit of skepticism, but what it effectively amounts to is that when Khashoggi entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on October 2nd, within minutes he was beaten— drugged, tortured, had his fingers cut off, and then was killed inside of the office of the Saudi consul general, the the head of the consulate there. The consul general was told to leave. They then, it seemed a member of this Saudi security team, dismembered Khashoggi's body and then seemingly took him outside of the consulate. And so what we've learned is that what seemed like a murder from the beginning, if these reports are true, actually was a murder and a grisly one at that. So last week, we thought that this was something that couldn't be ignored, that would draw attention to the Saudi government, and particularly the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's violence and general habit of committing human rights abuses. Right. And that's been actually the response from a lot of parts of the U.S. government. Yeah, there have been multiple government officials who have come out against this. Take Lindsey Graham. I was the leading advocate for Saudi Arabia because they're they're a strategic ally. So what he's saying here in this Fox News interview is that he's been like a lot of Republicans and and frankly, a lot of members of Congress throughout the years. Big Saudi fan. It's a good ally to have. But that this Khashoggi murder, which it seems like it is, is a step too far. To send a uh, assassination squad to Turkey to kill a man on foreign soil in a consulate in Turkey violates every norm known to mankind. He then adds that the world is watching us, and then... If the crown prince stays in power, it will be almost impossible to reconstruct this relationship at a time both of us need it. Yeah, that 
is extraordinary, not just from Lindsey Graham, but from anyone in the U.S. government to say essentially that we need a change of leadership in Saudi Arabia. We don't – American leaders don't talk like that about allies for the most part. And and Senator Marco Rubio, another influential foreign policy Republican, said something similar – Right? Like, this is a response that's proportionate to the level of the Saudi transgression here. It's extraordinary, but it it's the right policy response. But then there's, like, this weird way that the Trump administration has been talking, which is kind of different. So, yeah, let's just take Mike Pompeo's comments, right? I mean, he was in Saudi Arabia to meet with Saudi officials over this Khashoggi issue. And then he talks to reporters after the meetings, after which, by the way, he met with Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the guy who is likely behind this entire operation. And he seemed not that interested in getting to the bottom of the issue. I don't want to talk about any of the facts. Uh, they, they didn't want to either, and that they want to have the opportunity to complete this investigation in a thorough way. I don't want to talk about any of the facts. Yeah, that's kind of nuts. I, I think I, I've read the the whole context. It seems like it's it's a possible reading is that he didn't want to get into the facts openly in front of the press. But still, this came after he took smiling, happy photos with MBS, members of the royal family. And although there are some reports now that said he did press MBS privately, there's still this entire public messaging from Trump and Pompeo that, like, we don't really care. You guys take care of this issue. We're not We're not going to punish you. Now. Yeah, that's, that's the thing that really bugs me, right? Like, this isn't the Secretary of State freelancing foreign policy. He's taking his cues— from the president, right. who has said things like Khashoggi is not a U.S. citizen and that he doesn't want to jeopardize $110 billion in arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Which is fake news, by the yeah. way. <laughs> well, what, what, all of those arms sales? Yeah, the, the, the only like 14.5 has actually been committed. The rest of them are letters of intent. So they're like, hey, we could sell these to the Saudis. Like the, there's nothing on paper that says these deals are done. So it's not it's not just putting a price tag on a man's life. It's putting a hypothetical price tag on a Which man's life. Which is worse somehow. <laughs> yeah. And so he also compared to the Kavanaugh case that it was something like people were assuming that Saudi was guilty and needed to be proven innocent, uh, which is weird. Set, even setting aside all of my very angry feelings about the Kavanaugh and I'm hearing, sure Kavanaugh appreciates that that comparison, too. <laughs> being compared to a murderer. <laughs> yeah. And, and Pompeo seems to suggest now, going back to him, that they're fine, that the whole administration is fine with the Saudis conducting an investigation of themselves, which, as we know— generally is honest and fair in dictatorships. I mean, I can't imagine anything less controversial than that kind of investigation. Okay, so uh, what what does this all mean, right? Like, we have this weird and very unprecedented split, not only between Congress and the White House, but between leading congressional Republicans and Trump allies and the White House on this very, very, very important foreign policy issue. So I think what you're seeing are kind of two things. One is an American foreign policy issue, which is this is probably leading to a greater rethink, at least in maybe the Republican Party, of the longstanding U.S.-Saudi relationship. A rethink of that relationship is probably overdue. You're probably not going to see a break in it, but it might lead to, hey, maybe we are not so uber pro-Saudi all the time. The second issue I think is a broader one and something that Zach and I have talked about for a while, which is – that this administration is kind of giving carte blanche to authoritarians to do what they want. American administrations have been silent on Saudi human rights abuses and violations like these for for years. So Trump is not new. But what is kind of new here is that this is an American resident who was likely murdered by the Saudis. And America is saying, look, for hypothetical arms deals and because he's not a citizen and whatever, we're not going to do anything about it. That is new. And that 
is a massive signal to the Saudis that they can get away with this. They can probably get away with other things and other authoritarians watching Russia's Putin, North Korea's Kim Jong-un, Philippines' Rodrigo Duterte, all these guys and more can probably do whatever they want and America won't lift a finger. It's a particularly dangerous precedent to be setting in the Middle East where the U.S. is aligned with a lot of different authoritarian yeah. monarchies, military dictatorships. And to understand why, I want to give the last word to the segment to Jamal Khashoggi himself. The Washington Post posthumously published a column of his on freedom of the press in the Arab world and why it's imperiled and why it's threatened. He's writing about another journalist uh, who had been imprisoned, but it, it almost feels like he is writing about himself. He writes, and I quote, These actions no longer carry the consequence of a backlash from the international community. Instead, these actions may trigger condemnation, quickly followed by silence. As a result, Arab governments have been given free reign to continue silencing the media at an increasing rate. Wow. After the break, we'll talk about the Ebola outbreak in the DRC. Every week, Worldly takes you around the world to understand what's happening. Coming up next, hear an advertiser segment about a topic that might as well be foreign to a lot of people, finances. Do you know the emotion most often associated with money? Anxiety. <laughs> Anxiety, right? We've all felt that. But where does it come from? There's kind of a couple of different components to it. Some of them are really practical and they're valid, right? Like money is the ability to buy things that you need. We have other components of anxiety about money, which are more about just the social and psychological components of it. You can see other people spending money, but not other people saving money. That's Dan Egan. He's the director of behavioral finance and investing with Betterment. When you sign up to Betterment, we're going to ask you a lot of questions that are just practically useful. You know, like, are you married? Where do you live? How much money do you make? Because that influences what are the best account types to use? What kind of tax breaks can you use? How much do you need to be saving and over what period of time? According to Egan, the results of this can be summed up in one word. Uh, elation. When you have that sense of accomplishment of having hiked up a very large mountain and gotten to the top and you can see for miles, it really pays off a lot more than you expect and those kind of memories stick with you for longer. Find out more about Betterment's personalized solutions. Go to betterment.com vanity to get up to one year managed free. Betterment, outsmart average. Please remember investing involves risk. This has been advertiser content from Betterment. Thanks for that note from Betterment. To learn more about their tools, visit betterment.com slash worldly. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T dot com slash worldly. Hey, I'm here with Dylan Matthews, who's one of my real-life best friends, and he's here launching a podcast that I'm really excited about. So Dylan is the head of our new Vertical on Effective Altruism, which is about coming up with interesting and smart ways to make the world a better place. And that's what the podcast covers, right? Yeah, it's called Future Perfect. And I think if you listen to Worldly, you're probably interested in sort of big global problems and clever ways to solve them. So we have this really interesting episode on open borders, which I know you guys have talked a lot about on Worldly. But really digging into the details, what it would do to get rid of immigration law, what kind of backlash it would face. And every one of our episodes is a big thought experiment like that. And if that sounds like something you'd be into, you should listen to Future Perfect every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Welcome back. One of the biggest Ebola outbreaks in history is currently underway in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. There are 220 cases and 107 people have died so far. 
To understand how this got started and what it means both for the DRC and for the broader world, I brought in our in-house expert, Julia Belouz. She's the senior health correspondent at Vox and our resident knowing everything about Ebola person. Julia, hello. Hi, nice, nice to be here. Talk about the basics. Like, why is Ebola so scary? So it's very deadly. It causes horrible symptoms, and we have no cure for it. So it's a viral hemorrhagic fever. And what that means is it strikes people like the worst flu that you've ever had. People get the sweats. They have body aches, pains. They start vomiting. They have uncontrollable diarrhea. So really, really severe symptoms. And then in rare cases, you can bleed. It's a hemorrhagic fever. So you you end up bleeding out of your every orifice. And yeah, I want to be clear that Hollywood is kind of exaggerated and suggested that happens in all cases. It doesn't. But if the disease progresses, then you have these awful, awful symptoms. And, and the survival rate is really low, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so I guess it's a, there's a caveat there. So in robust health systems like the U.S., if people are treated early, they do tend to survive. But in a place like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the death rate of this current outbreak is 60%. So most people who are becoming sick are dying. So so let's talk about the details of this place. So it's in the northern part, northeastern part of the Congo, right? Yep. And so talk to me about what's happening there. Ebola showed up in this province in eastern Congo called North Kivu. And what's different about this outbreak is that North Kivu is an active conflict zone. So this is the first time we have the Ebola virus um, that we know of showing up in a war zone. So there are armed opposition groups that have been carrying out deadly attacks on civilians, forcing people from their homes. There's something like a million people displaced in this area. So there's a lot of insecurity. There's distrust of government. There's distrust of health responders. And this is already a country, as you know, that's one of the poorest in the world with a very fragile health system and persistent shortages of healthcare workers. Congo has had many outbreaks, but it's never shown up in this particular area that isn't a great place to have an Ebola outbreak, basically. Right. We know from other recent experience with war zones and infectious diseases like Syria that when you have an active conflict going on, it's really, really difficult. To, to vaccinate, to, to respond to outbreaks. And yeah, absolutely. You, you, outbreaks tend to follow conflicts. So how does this complicate the response? So it's really important to understand what a normal response looks like when we're not in a war zone. And um, basically, what one of the pillars of an Ebola response is contact tracing. So that involves, you know, finding people who are sick with the disease and then finding all of their friends and family members, anyone they might have had contact with, following them for 21 days. And as soon as they show symptoms of the disease, isolating them. And the same goes for the people who have Ebola. So sending them to treatment centers where they're isolated from the rest of the community. And the idea is that you break the chains of Ebola transmission. And in this outbreak, we also have a vaccine finally. So there's this highly effective, it's still an, considered an experimental vaccine, but um, they're also using that on the contacts of people who have fallen ill. Another really important part of an Ebola response is safe burials. So essentially when you have Ebola, the sicker you become and the closer to death. And when you die, the more infectious you are. So the more viruses in your body. In the DRC and other countries where Ebola is endemic, there are often funerary rituals that involve kissing and touching the corpse and making sure that you have safe burials is, is really, really important. So, so it sounds like it's difficult to begin with to handle, and now it's in a war zone. Absolutely. So it's hugely difficult. And now what's been happening is contact tracing has been really difficult. 
because you have a lot of displaced people and people moving around. And right when this outbreak started, some health researchers went in and did a survey of the local population about whether they'd want to um, send their family members to treatment centers, whether they'd report family and friends who were sick with Ebola. And nearly 20% said they wouldn't send a family member to a treatment center, which is a really high number. And so, so there's some resistance in the population to doing the things that need to be done. And it's completely understandable. Like we said at the beginning, 60% of people who go into these treatment centers are dying. So do you really want to send your family member there? Maybe you don't understand what it means. Maybe that's not being communicated to people. And so it's really tricky to carry out these basics of an Ebola response. Some reports I've seen even suggest that people are attacking aid workers who are in this area. Yeah, so that that's come up. And it's not the first time this has happened in an Ebola outbreak. Again, you can imagine people are coming into your home, like tearing you away from your family members. It's not the most pleasant thing to go through. And then when you put it in a place where there is a lot of distrust of authorities and of government— that certainly doesn't make it any easier. I talked to one person who's been helping with the response through the Gates Foundation, and he said um, he could hear active gunfire near his hotel right before he arrived. There had been attacks on civilians that caused them to have to halt the response for several days. And so what that essentially means is that's days of contacts not being traced and who might be infecting other people and chains of transmission. You're not intercepting the way you have to. So... Uh, yeah, it's been very, very, very difficult. So let's put this in perspective, right? Because sometimes people overinflate Ebola dangerously. How serious is this outbreak? It's big. It is in a place, it's on a, the border with Rwanda and Uganda. And these are very porous borders. So there's some worry about cases being exported to other countries. And so this is a really big deal. But yesterday, the World Health Organization stopped short of declaring it what's called a public health emergency of international concern, or if this, the acronym is FAKE. That's confusing. Is, a FAKE. So a FAKE is really bad. It's not a fake. fake. A FAKE is really bad. There have only been four in history. They're not something that the WHO declares very lightly. It's, it's very serious. And in this case, they decided it wasn't yet a fake. Okay, so why exactly is this one? Because it sounds really, when we're talking about it, it sounds really dangerous. Why isn't it a fake? They can't win. So if they do declare a fake too early and then the outbreak peters out, they're seen to be sort of like the boy who cried fake. So their reasoning was that cases haven't yet been exported, so it's still contained within the DRC. There's something like several hundred responders on the ground there already. So I think there was a sense that the machinery that needs to be in place to respond to an outbreak is already there. But people have already been criticizing them and saying, once you declare a public health emergency of international concern, it galvanizes political attention and resources. And maybe that could have helped bring this outbreak under control more quickly. So there was another Ebola outbreak recently, right? That was contained with vaccines. Yeah, there was another outbreak right in the DRC as well in another part of the country that was brought under control pretty quickly. And um, the vaccine was seen to be an important part of that response. But I think this is a reminder when Ebola shows up in a place like North Kivu where you have all this complexity, even something as incredible as a vaccine can't fix the problem. Julia, I want to thank you for talking with us for a while and, and clarifying a situation that is hard for a lot of people to understand and frankly scary. That's going to be it for us this week. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who, as always, did an amazing job stage directing us. 
rate, subscribe, review wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a worldly fan, you might also enjoy Displaced, which is another show from the Vox Media Podcast Network, this one focusing almost entirely on the global refugee crisis. Hello, I'm Ravi Gurumathi. And I am Grant Gordon, and we are your co-hosts of a new weekly podcast called Displaced from Vox Media and the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work. Right now, we're seeing the biggest refugee crisis since World War II, the biggest number of people displaced because of conflict. You've seen it in the headlines about Syria or Yemen or Jordan. If you want to understand why that is and what can be done about it, listen to Displaced. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast.